Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great, episode 23. What happened next? Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum. Bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. The stars are not wanted now. Put out everyone. Back up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. Lines from one of my favourite poems. Indeed, one of the very few poems I know any of. Stop All the Clocks by W. H. Auden. Famously depicted in the 1994 film Four Weddings and a Funeral. While I hope you were all coping with the loss of our dearly departed Alexander, I doubt you'll be surprised to find out Alexander's generals didn't cope. In fact, they made quite a mess of things. A mess we'll be exploring today. While Alexander's story is over, it is quite a sudden ending in the middle of a wider story of the Middle East. So, this week, we'll take Alexander's empire and destroy it, breaking it up into three large pieces and several smaller ones, which would dominate the eastern Mediterranean until Rome sent in her legions. But we're getting a bit too far ahead of ourselves. Let's return to Alexander's deathbed. We saw last week that Alexander was very ill at the end, and unable to speak. But there are, of course, other versions. That he had some last words. Very famous last words. When his generals, panicking over who was to succeed him, asked Alexander who it should be, he replied, The strongest. He is also said to have said that there would be funeral games after his death. Both of these mean the same thing for Alexander's empire. Civil war. Then there is another account. That Alexander gave his ring to Perdiccas. Who is Perdiccas? I'm sure you're asking. Well, we have met him before. In episode 18, I mentioned him taking a town in the march down the Indus. He was Alexander's senior cavalry commander, and he would indeed succeed Alexander, in practice. Let me explain. The Macedonian monarchy was elective, not strictly hereditary. So, the nobility, in this case the generals in Alexander's army, would vote for someone to be king from the Macedonian royal family. If Alexander had chosen an heir, the generals would have probably just gone with his wishes, but they would have to decide for themselves. There were two candidates. Perdiccas wanted the successor to be Alexander's child. Wait, what? Alexander didn't have a child. Oh, but he did. His first wife, Roxanne, was pregnant with Alexander's child. So, Perdiccas proposed, they wait for the birth of the child. If it was male, they would make him king. Perdiccas was a cavalry commander, and so was broadly offering the views of the aristocracy. While Meliga, an infantry general, 
so broadly offering the views of the peasantry, wanted a pure-blooded Macedonian king. There was only one person who was a member of the royal family, and a Macedonian. Alexander's half-brother, Arahideus. You remember Arahideus? We spoke of him in episode two. We mentioned he was mentally challenged. A compromise was reached. Arahidatus was renamed and became Philip III, and Alexander's child did prove to be a boy, and was made Philip's co-ruler as Alexander IV. These were to be figureheads. Neither was fit for ruling the empire. Real administrative power was to be held by Antipater in Macedonia and Perdiccas in Asia. Perdiccas would be chief executive, or if you prefer, regent, and commander of the Asian forces. Meliga would be his deputy, and Craterus would be the guardian of Philip. Perdiccas reallocated the satrapies of the west. Eumenes would take Cappadocia, Ptolemy would take Egypt, Lashkimachus would take Thrace, and western Anatolia would be taken by Antigonus. Quite a nice balance of power. It wasn't to last. Within the year, Perdiccas would gain control of Philip, reducing Craterus's power to that of a mere veto. Perdiccas's treatment of Meliga was much harder. The two men did not get on. Meliga had physically left Babylon and was camped outside the walls, until Perdiccas arrested Meliga and executed him. And that's only the start of things. While Perdiccas's reallocation of the provinces may seem nice, Cappadocia had yet to be conquered. Cleomenes had usurped power in Egypt, and control of Thrace had been mostly lost in the Thracian revolt. The only reason Perdiccas hadn't redistributed Asian satrapies is he didn't want to alienate the powerful holders of them. He would need their support to survive. Added to this was revolt at both ends of the empire. While the Asians remained peaceful following Alexander's death, there would be no such attitude from the Greeks. Alexander had settled thousands of Greek soldiers in Bactria, settlements which would indeed become a Greek kingdom, but 23,000 troops would revolt in 323 BC, deciding to march home. They were unsuccessful. Perdiccas forced them back, but another revolt would occur at the same time among the European Greeks. You see, the Greeks were fearful of the returning troops we discussed at the end of episode 21, and out of desperation, Athens raised a mercenary army, and soon other Greek cities joined them, and all of a sudden, there is war in Greece. Things went well for the rebels at first. They had Antipater besieged in the town of Lamia, which gives its name to the conflict, the Lamian War. Things quickly fell apart, though. Athens's fleet was crushed in the Battle of Amorgos, while Macedonian reinforcements from Asia freed Antipater, who defeated the Greek army at Cranon in Thessaly in 322. The League of Corinth was destroyed. A clear message that the Greeks were subjects, not allies, as Alexander had liked to pretend. Athens was to be punished. The democracy was dismantled. The great politician Demosthenes committed suicide, while other democratic leaders were executed. 
12,000 Athenians lost their citizenship. It sounds like things were going well for Perdiccas. Perdiccas wanted greater central control of the empire, while his satraps wanted more independence. Antigonus was being particularly troublesome, refusing to help Eumenes take Cappadocia. He fled to Greece and told Antipater that Perdiccas was planning to marry Cleopatra, the sister of Alexander. Perdiccas was supposed to be marrying a daughter of Antipater. Antipater was outraged. You can sense civil war creeping up, and it came in 321. It was sparked by Ptolemy, who had gained control of Egypt. He captured Alexander's body as it travelled to Macedonia, taking it to Alexandria, who marched against him in 321. So, we have on one side of the war, Perdiccas and Eumenes, and on the other, Ptolemy, Antipater, Antigonus, Lyskamachus, and Craterus. Eumenes was to hold up Antipater and Craterus, something he did successfully, while Perdiccas marched into Egypt. Ptolemy defeated Perdiccas by opening the Nile dikes, drowning thousands of Perdiccas's soldiers. Perdiccas was assassinated by his demoralised officers. The generals met to redivide the empire. Antipater was now to act as regent. Ptolemy and Lyskamachus were to maintain their commands. Seleucus was made satrap of Babylon, Antigonus was to be chief general of the Asian forces, and was tasked with hunting down Eumenes, who was condemned to death. So, what can we take from all of this? Had things changed? Yes. Perdiccas had failed to control the satraps, and Antipater was not going to do any better. As can be seen by his return to Macedonia, with both the kings. Macedonia was the centre of Antipater's empire, not Babylon, which was, you know, in the centre of the empire. The man who would take advantage of the situation was Antigonus. Things were quite stable. Antigonus was successfully campaigning against Eumenes until Antipater died in 319. Antipater named Polypercon as his heir as regent, something opposed by Antipater's son, Cassander, who fled to Antigonus. So we have a second round of civil wars. On the one side, we have Antigonus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Lyskamachus. On the other side, we have Polypercon and Eumenes. So, what happened? Alexander's mother, Olympias, joined the side of Polypercon, and he had successes, but Olympias soon lost him this support. Olympias was very fond of her grandson, Alexander IV, and so she had Philip III and his queen murdered, alienating much of the Macedonian aristocracy and driving them to Cassander. Soon after, Olympias was killed. Cassander gained control of Alexander IV and Roxanne, naming himself regent. But in reality, Cassander was now king of Macedon. Alexander and Roxanne would never be seen again in public. Alexander would die in 310 BC. Polypercon had been fleeing to various places, eventually winding up in control of the Peloponnese. Meanwhile, in Asia, 
Eumenes was still being pursued, and in 316 he was betrayed by his soldiers and was executed by Antigonus. Antigonus appointed his own men to the Asian satrapies, and Seleucus fled to Ptolemy. So, we have Cassander in Macedonia and Greece, Polypercon in the Peloponnese, Lyskimachus in Thrace, Ptolemy and Seleucus in Egypt, with Antigonus in Asia. In reality, Alexander's dynasty had been usurped by those who were protecting it. It is 316 BC. Alexander had been dead for seven years. Civil War Round 3 would begin in 315. All the other powers demanded Antigonus share his conquests with them. He, in return, demanded they recognise Greece as free. Neither of these demands was met. Antigonus did not actually want freedom for the Greeks, but it gained him support among the Greeks for his planned invasion of Macedonia, which never materialised. So, just so we're all on the same page, we have Antigonus and his son Demetrius against Cassander, Polypercon, Lyskimachus, Ptolemy and Seleucus. Ptolemy defeated Demetrius in 312 BC, who then placed Seleucus back in control of Babylon. Seleucus proceeded to turn the eastern satraps against Antigonus, who was doing terribly, and a peace was brought about in 311 BC. Cassander was commander-in-chief in Europe. Antigonus was commander-in-chief in Asia. Ptolemy and Lyskimachus would maintain their satrapies. The Greek cities would be freed. But this was a truce for both sides for them to catch their breath. Civil War Round 4 would kick off in 307. Before we get into this war, Antigonus had tried to bring Polypercon to his side to during the ceasefire by sending him Heracles, a possible illegitimate son of Alexander the Great. Polypercon did not switch sides and killed the boy in 309. He would die a few years later and plays no further part in our narrative. In 307, Demetrius invaded Greece to free all the Greek cities. He liberated Athens, restored the democracy, took Cyprus in 306, and took Salamis. He was highly successful. Something else notable happened in these years. Demetrius and Antigonus were proclaimed kings when news reached... Syria of Demetrius's victory. Cassander, Lyskimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus all followed up on this. Alexander's dynasty was well and truly dead. The war continued until 301, when Lyskimachus and Seleucus defeated Antigonus and Demetrius at Ipsus in Phrygia. Antigonus was killed. Demetrius fled their hopes of empire, dead. So, where are we now? Alexander has been dead for 22 years. This is how his empire shapes up. We have Cassander, king in Macedon, Lyskimachus, king of Thrace, and Anatolia, north of the Taurus Mountains. Seleucus was king of Babylonia, Iran, the coastal region in the south of Anatolia, Syria, and Mesopotamia. Ptolemy was king of Egypt, Judea, Phoenicia, and southern Syria. Demetrius was in control of the seas, having fled 
and controlling a few ports in the Aegean. Ptolemy allied with Lysimachus, and in response, Seleucus allied with Demetrius. Peace reigned for a decade. The problem started in 297 BC. Cassander died, and two of his sons, confusingly named Alexander and Antipater, started feuding over who was to rule. So, in 294, Demetrius took Macedon from both of them. Civil War Round 5 Demetrius at once began preparing to invade Asia, but Lysimachus and the king of Epirus, Pyrrhus, attacked and forced Demetrius into invading Asia before he was ready in 286. Demetrius was ill and outnumbered. He surrendered to Seleucus, who allowed him to live under house arrest near Antioch. Demetrius's kingdom did not last long. Lysimachus became joint king of Macedonia with Pyrrhus, but forced him out in 285. Pyrrhus, finding himself pushed out of the east, would try his luck in the west, where he would invade Italy and face the growing power of Rome. Lysimachus began to have trouble winning his kingdom, and Seleucus attacked Civil War Round 6. The two monarchs, both aged over 80, I might add, met at Corapedium in Phrygia. Seleucus was victorious. Lysimachus was dead. Seleucus seemed to be putting together Alexander's empire again, when he was assassinated later that year by an exiled son of Ptolemy, who was himself killed in 279 by a tribe of migrating Gauls in Macedonia. The Gauls were beaten by the Aetolian League and the son of Demetrius, Antigonus. This legitimised this Antigonus's emergence, and in 276 he would become king of Macedonia. The Gauls in question would move to Anatolia, giving their name to the region of Galatia. So, there we are. 276. Alexander has been dead for 47 years. We have the Antigonids in power in Macedon, where they would remain until they were defeated by Rome. We have the Seleucids in power in Asia, where they would remain until they were defeated by Rome. We have the Ptolemies in power in Egypt, where they would remain until they were defeated by Rome. A nice place to end our story. Remember, you can find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast thehistoryofpodcast.tumblr.com Then there is our Google Plus page and send us an email at thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com Get in touch if you have any questions. If you do, we'll have a Q&A next week. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week for our last episode. <laughs>